0: Turn to Micah chapter 2. Tonight's going to be different. It's going to be briefer, uh, a little different from what we normally would do. We're going to look at a passage, but it's going to be handled in a different way a little bit. Because of the nature of the passage. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a tunnel so dark you couldn't see any light at all? Or maybe... I remember one time we were in North Florida and uh, dark woods. Some of us ventured out into the woods a little bit and were completely lost. (laughs) Didn't even know where we were and had not gone very far. Didn't have a flashlight, thinking, oh, we'll come right back. (laughs) And we looked around, which way is back. It was totally dark. Uh, Ben, I talked to Ben just yesterday about caves. Ben goes through caves in Alabama periodically. He's a caver. Or he goes caving. He doesn't cave in on doctrine or anything like that. (laughs) And uh, Ben uh, tells me that, uh, you know, once you get deep into the tunnel, this is logical. You would think this. It's so dark you can't see anything. You have these headlamps in order to see. They turn off all the headlamps, nothing. can't even see your hand in front of you at all. And uh, I said, well, what's it like, Ben, when you come out of the cave finally? and, And Ben enjoys caving. What's it like when you go get to the end of the cave and you see the light, uh, light at the end of the tunnel, a little better at the end of the cave? He said it, you feel relieved, even though I jo- he says that even though I enjoy caving, you feel a sense of relief because there's light. You see daylight finally, and that's if you've ever been in a situation you know what I'm talking about, where you've been really dark, so dark that you can feel it, and yet all of a sudden the light's there and you're thinking, thank God for the light's finally here. Well, this is how it's been in Micah so far, in chapters one and two. It's been pitch black. It's been dark. Micah's talked about sin. He's talked about judgment. He's talked about misery coming upon Israel. For example, in chapter 1, he gives a poetic description of God coming in judgment. Look at chapter 1, verse 3 of Micah. He says, For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. And it gives this poetic description of God coming in judgment against Israel, we looked at that. Look at verse 5. He talks about rebellion and sins. All this, all this judgment coming is for the rebellion of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Due to the rebellion of Jacob and their sins, God is going to have to judge them, or he wouldn't even be righteous with himself. And then he talks about Samaria's destruction in verses 6 and 7. Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom at that time. And in verse 6, God says, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country. Planning places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley We'll lay, lay, lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be smashed. And we know eventually that Samaria located on top of a hill, that that happened. They basically, uh, their uh, material goods tumbled down the hill in total destruction. And as if that wasn't enough, things get darker here. Micah's hometown and Micah's area and the city surrounding his Hometown or gonna be destroyed by Assyria in verses 8 to 16 of chapter 1 and we looked at that a few weeks ago Uh, for example in verse uh, Verse 12, I believe it says in the third line a calamity has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem and so God's God is is going to bring judgment upon these people in time and and he did that he used Assyria to bring that judgment to the cities of Western Judah including Micah's hometown of Moresheth Gath, as it says in chapter 1, verse 1, where he was from. The Things things tend to get darker as we go along here. In chapter 2, verse 1, a woe is pronounced upon the greedy landowners, uh, probably rich, powerful men, maybe even the leaders of Israel, uh, are, are are excoriated with this woe. Verse Chapter 2, verse 1, woe to those. That's a message of judgment. Woe to those who commit or scheme iniquity, verse 2. They covet fields and then seize them. These guys were greedy. And, and so God says, you're going to be judged. And then if that wasn't bad enough, false prophets are on the scene everywhere preaching a message that's popular for people to hear as, as today. People want to hear a certain message. They don't want to hear the message of sin and judgment. But, and so the false prophets were preaching a popular message. What did they say? Look at verse, line, uh, verse 11. If a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor. He would be spokesman. He would be the prophet for this people. Yeah, what they wanted to hear was a guy speaking, preaching about wine and liquor and about, you know, having a good time and about uh, eating and drinking and being merry. That's the prophet they wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear a message from the word of God. And so it was a dark time for Israel and seemed to be no relief in sight and deservedly so. Israel was guilty of sin They were guilty of blatantly disobeying disobeying God, and so they must face the wrath of God. As God has said many times, and especially back in Deuteronomy 28, 29, in that area, he said, hey, if you disobey me, you're going to be cursed. And he lists curse after curse. So they deserve the wrath of God. But in all this, we come to verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, and we have a message of reassurance here, a message of reassurance in the midst of all this judgment. And he says this, a remnant will be saved by the Lord. A remnant is kind of like the Sunday night crowd. These are the people that survive the Sunday morning service (laughs) after Mike finishes preaching to them. And they kind of come back, and we don't have such a big crowd on Sunday night. And apparently the remnant is made up largely of children, Ryan. I didn't realize this (laughs) until tonight. And so this is the light at the end of the tunnel, verses 12 and 13 that there's going to be this time of of regathering, reassurance for the nation of Israel. It's a hope that God said long ago would be fulfilled in Genesis. Now, some think this passage should not be here, and that would be the critics of the Bible. They don't understand why all this talk of judgment, and then you get to verses 12 and 13, and you have this message of reassurance and hope, and they say to themselves, wait a minute, this should not be there. Uh, And so they deny that it should be there. They deny it. And we look at that and we say, what else is new? The bi- critics of the Bible don't believe the scriptures anyway, right? And we take it, and we believe that it's there for a reason. That God put it there for a reason. We believe what the scripture says. However, even I, all of us, as, we, as we've gone through Micah, we're surprised to see this here, this, these two verses, 12 and 13. All of a sudden, they're there after all this judgment. We're surprised. We believe it should be there because we believe in the word of God. We don't expect it, kind of like an oasis in the middle of the desert. You don't expect that you're in the desert, thirsty and weary and traveling, and uh, all of a sudden there's this oasis there. And you say, thank God for this oasis. I was uh, golfing with my brother one time years ago, and we had had a, a tee after tee of 500, 600 yard, yards to drive the golf ball. And it was long holes, and we finally came around a corner. All of a sudden there was this little par, 130 yards par, and it was like, an easy, an easy one, my brother said, i never forget, he said, thank God for small miracles. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things, you don't expect to find it, but it's there. And you know what, this is typical among the prophets. When they speak, all of a sudden, they, they transition from first gear to another gear, and you don't expect it. And that's typical of the prophets, they do that time and time again. Remember what Martin Luther said, we quoted that at the beginning of this book. He said this, they, this is Martin Luther, uh, a brilliant man, brilliant scholar, He said, they, the prophets, have a strange way of talking. They talk like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, they ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they're getting at. A man as brilliant as Martin Luther, a doctor of theology in his his time in Germany, by the way, at the university, said, I have a difficult time with the minor prophets and the major prophets as well. Even John Calvin Another brilliant man who 500 years later after his death is still talked about on a weekly basis. He said this, talking about Micah. He said, I see not, in regard to these two verses, 12 and 13, I see not how the prophet could pass so suddenly into a different strain. He says, we've been going one direction. All of a sudden, he makes an about face and he talks about a completely different subject. Calvin said, I just don't see how he can do this. He was surprised himself. But understand this is what the prophets do. They make these sudden transitions without warning, and you have to be ready for it. You know, we have to be the ones who make the adjustment in our way of thinking when we read the Bible. We don't, we can't expect the word of God to come across uh, to, in, in our American perspective. We, we see things in a certain way in the 21st century in America. We can't expect that to be in the Bible like that. The Bible says something. We have to make the adjustment. OK, why is he saying this? Forget about what I'm seeing in front of me right now in our society, why we go back in time to the 8th century B.C. in this case, what is the Word of God saying right here? J.C. Ryle said this, if we cannot reconcile biblical passages, the fault lies with us, not with God, right? This is the Word of God. The fault lies with us. And so you have an abrupt transition here, and the abruptness of this transition shows a stark contrast to the verses preceding it. You have these false prophets saying, We're not going to be judged by God. Surely God wouldn't do this. God's patience never runs out, verse 6, chapter 2. His patience doesn't run out. He'll put up with us forever. He's not going to send us into judgment. And Micah says, oh, no, he will send you into judgment for your sins. And so you have this stark contrast here to the message of the false prophets in in verses 12 and 13 who were preaching a false message. Now we have a true message, a message of salvation, a message of deliverance from God truly spoken. And, so, and these two verses in, in verse 12 and 13 are called a salvation oracle or a, pro, or a salvation prophecy. It is a proclamation of salvation to the people of God. The purpose of it was to give hope, to assure the true people of God that there would be, yes, there would be a future for Israel, and there will be a future for Israel, even though things look grim on the surface, as, as we've seen in the first two chapters. Now, let's read these verses, and we'll look at this uh, as we go through it. Twelve, Verse 12 says... I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them and the Lord at their head. Now, as I said, I'm approaching this passage a little differently. You'll understand why after I wrestled with it the whole week. It was a wrestling match, and I think I lost, quite honestly. Uh, so I'm going to have a longer introduction to this, but as I said, tonight will be briefer. Um, there are different views of these two verses that various people, of, of the handful of people that have actually studied Micah, there are different views even given by those guys. And I'm going I'm to look at this. Normally I wouldn't do this. I'm going to do it tonight for a reason. There are different views given by different uh, people who have studied this uh, passage. Some think that verses 12 and 13 are a continuation of the message of the false prophets from verses 6 through 11. Verses 6 through 11, the prophets said, we're not going to go into exile, verse 6. They told the the truth prophets, don't speak out uh, because uh, reproaches will not be turned back. In other words, we're not going to go into judgment. We explained this last week. And and so they they have that message, and and some think, well, this is a continuation of the false prophet's message, message, verses twelve and thirteen. But the false prophet said they wouldn't go into exile. But these passages, these verses, I believe, are telling telling us that Israel is going to come out of exile, verses twelve and thirteen. So I think that is a wrong way to look at it. Some think that verses twelve and thirteen are a message of judgment. Uh, They're saying that uh, God will lead His people into exile. However, it's, it's very obvious from these verses that he's going to bring his people out of exile, not into it here, in, the, in these particular verses. And this is a message of assurance and of hope and of victory. So I don't think that's right either. Some think that these verses, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, should go along with chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. They say, wait a minute, this is in the wrong place in Micah. This should be really with chapter 4, verses 1 to 8, because it goes along with that passage better, because... Chapter 4, 1 through 8 is talking about the last days. So therefore, we think this has been placed wrong. We need to take it out and put it with chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. However, we believe, as Bible believers, that not only did God inspire his word, but he arranged it the way he wanted it to be arranged. Everything in the word of God is there in its order for a certain reason. He put it together. Are we actually to believe that that God, the God who can inspire his word, can't put it in the right order, or give it the right arrangement. And you know the critics always. By the way, when you read about when you read about a study of the scriptures, you're going to come across people who are always questioning the location of passages in the Bible. They're, they always say, "Well, this verse shouldn't really be here. It should be over there at the end of the book." Constantly doing that. But I take the Word of God as for what it is—the Word of God. I believe it, and I, and we leave it alone. And we have to deal with it on our, on our own. Now, there is another view that's very interesting. I thought about this a lot this week, racking my brain against the wall with this one, and that is a couple of prominent commentators. I'm li- allowing you to enter my study time right now, okay, if you don't mind. <laughs> I told you this would be different tonight. A couple of prominent commentators say that, that these verses refer to the deliverance of Jerusalem from Assyria's siege. Remember, the, the nation of Assyria was going to come in, and they, they came to Jerusalem and begin a siege against Jerusalem, or were going to. In 701 BC, they were going to do that, and uh, they think that this is what these verses are referring to. Look at Second Kings chapter 18 for this for this incident. So turn with me to Second Kings chapter 18. We looked at this once. We'll look at it again. Probably look at it again before it's all over with another night. 2 Kings 18.13. Let me explain what I'm talking about. It says there in 2 Kings 18.13, Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, the good king, Micah prophesied under King Hezekiah and others. This was the good king. During his reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Assyria, a wicked nation, the nation, as I told you earlier, Jonah went to. Uh, and uh, this was the king at that time. Very... Uh, Military-minded uh, nation. In fact, their whole their whole nation, their whole everything they did was about going around and trying to capture another nation, and going against their fortresses and and exercising their military might. This is what they live for, these guys. So, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Now, that is what Micah is talking about in chapter one, verses eight to sixteen. He comes against the fortified cities of Judah. That was if you read those verses, chapter one, verses eight through sixteen, you see all the cities that it talks about. One of those is Micah's hometown, and the Assyrians would come up against those areas of western Judah, and they would devastate them, and they did devastate them. It was a bad, it was a bad thing, and so that's what he's talking about here. He's coming against that area of Judah, and then the Assyrian army, when they were in Lachish, one of the cities in Judah, they sent messengers and, and a, an army to Jerusalem to mock the king of Israel, to mock Israel. Look at chapter uh, verse chapter 18, verse 17 of 2 Kings. Verse 17, then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Saras. Now those are not names, those are titles of officials in Assyria. They sent these officials and the Rabshaka, another official, from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to wear. Where did he send it to? To Jerusalem, right? So they're coming up right to the capital Assyria. An enemy nation is coming up right to the capital. They went up and they came to Jerusalem. And so they're there. And then look what they do when they're in Jerusalem. They mock God and they mock the king in Israel. Look at verses 28 to 30. Then the rabshaka, the official from Assyria, stood and cried out with a loud voice in Judean. He's speaking in their language now. This guy's a linguistic, okay? He knows their language. He says, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king of Assyria tells you Judeans. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. He's not going to be able to do it. Verse 30, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So he's mocking Israel. He's mocking God, saying, you guys don't believe that Hezekiah is going to, deliver you. Don't believe the Lord's going to deliver you. Assyria is a mighty power. We've been knocking one nation down after another just in our path. You, you guys are no match for us. We'll get you too. We we're just we destroying cities in Judah. Who do you think you are? We're going to get you too as well. And so what does Hezekiah do? He decides he decides to do something very good. He seeks advice from Isaiah the prophet. That's a great thing he did. And look what happens in 2 Kings 19, 1-4. And when King Hezekiah heard all this mocking, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Wow, that's the right reaction. He's afraid. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, son of Amos, who prophesied the same time as Micah did, by the way. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection. For children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshaka, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the what? The remnant that is left. Offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, the guys that hold this view say the remnant here are refugees that came from those cities in Judah that Assyria had already attacked, plus the people living in Jerusalem. They're the remnant, the leftovers, the survivors. And they're all gathered in Jerusalem now, and they're saying that Micah 12, 2, 12 and 13, is talking about God gathering the people, the remnant, into the, the capital of Jerusalem and defending them and protecting them so they can find safety there. Do you remember what Sennacherib said in his journals in history? His historical journal, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, said this. This is not in the Bible. He said, as for Hezekiah, the Judean, who did not submit to my yoke, 46 of his strongly fortified cities, as well as the villages of their environs, I surrounded and conquered 200,150 people. I brought here and counted as booty. He says, I captured 200,000 Judeans. Wow, that's a lot. And so you got this remnant left in Jerusalem. He says, Sennacherib goes on to say in his journals, as for Hezekiah, like a bird in a cage, I shut him up in Jerusalem, his royal city. Well, and so this is the remnant that was left. And so, and then we know in time that that uh, God killed 185,000 Assyrians miraculously through his power. Look at verse chapter 19, verses 30 and 31. Those that hold this view say this. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. And so they take the word remnant, and they say, see, this has got to be talking about uh, the siege of Assyria, uh, Micah 2.12 and 13, because this word remnant is also found in Micah 2.12. It's the same idea. So it has to be. Now look back at Micah chapter 1, Micah 1. Another reason they say that this is the Assyrian siege on Jerusalem is because in verse 9 it says this, of Michael 1, chapter 1, it says, Her wound is incurable, it has come to Judah, it has reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. The gate of Jerusalem, okay? Verse 12. uh, It talks about the gate of Jerusalem at the end of the verse. Chapter 2, verse 13, talks about passing through the gate. And these guys say it's got to be the gate of Jerusalem. They put those together. Well... So the idea here is that God gathered his remnant into Jerusalem, he destroyed the enemy and let his remnant out victoriously. The problem is the word remnant is not evidence enough really to, to make this a, a definite conclusion. It's used elsewhere to describe the remnant coming back during the millennial kingdom of, of Israel. And so in Micah 2, 2, uh, 2:13 does not tell us what gate is exactly mentioned. Is it Jerusalem? Is it another gate? It doesn't say. It's unclear. It's an interesting interpretation. It's worth considering, by the way. As I said, I beat my head against the wall all week thinking about this. But another view is this. Micah 2, 12, 13 is speaking of the Lord's gathering his people from the Babylonian captivity and bringing them back to to the land of Israel. Well, let me tell you what I lean towards. I lean towards this idea of telescoping. In other words, that maybe after the Babylonian captivity, God brought his people back to Israel, and he did. But it's telescoping down in time, pointing to a future time when Christ will return well the Messiah will come back and regather the nation back to the remnant back to Israel. Even the rabbis interpret verse 13 as referring to the Messiah. I lean towards that way. Do I know this for sure? No I don't. By the way, neither does anybody else. <laughs> the fact of the matter is Micah 12 why did I go through all this? I'm telling you the truth, I'm being honest with you Micah 2, 12 13 is not exactly crystal clear. Maybe it was crystal clear to Micah. It's not crystal clear to Mark, however. <laughs> okay. And this brings us to an interesting fact about the Bible. Most of the Bible is readily understandable as you read it. You read through it, you see God says, love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart. Come to Christ and you can be saved by believing on him and repenting of your sins. All these things. We see that clearly. But some things are difficult. Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, this is the Apostle Peter. He said, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking of them of these things in which some things are hard to understand. The Apostle Peter says, I love Paul. He's my beloved brother. Man, that guy's tough sometimes to understand. He's not always easy. It's very difficult at times. Let me ask you a question. Who here, among God's people, perfectly understands everything in the Bible? Raise your hand. Eschatology. (laughs) You got it all down? Who here understands everything about Micah, the book of Micah? No? I didn't think so. You know why? The Word of God was inspired by an infinite mind, the mind of God. He's always above us. He's always beyond us. We never grasp everything fully. The Bible's not always easy. It's not always on... the meaning of it is not always on the surface to where we can just get it easy. We need the help of the Holy Spirit as well. Sometimes you see a truth one year in the Bible you never saw in the past, even though you read that passage a year ago. Now you see it clearer. Sometimes your circumstances are different. The Dewhurst, now they see things clearer maybe than they did before because of the circumstances. In Bible, I'm, I'm not saying the Bible is only meant for scholars. It is not. William Tyndall back in the when the Catholic priests only were allowed to read the Bible, he said, I'm going to make it one day so even a plowboy can read the scriptures. And he translated the Bible, a translation, which preceded the King James. And so some things are hard to understand, says the word of God, right? I believe this is one of those passages, Micah 2, 12 and 13. Now, having said all that, that the exact situation here is not, is not crystal clear. I think the general message of of the text is clear, that the Lord will come to the aid of his remnant and restore them to a proper relationship with himself. I think that's clear enough, and we're going to see some truths about God that are going to help us out tonight. You'll notice, by the way, that the Lord is the one who initiates everything in these verses. Verse 12, the Lord is speaking. He says, I will surely assemble. I'm going to surely gather the remnant of Israel. I'm going to do this and that. In verse 13, Micah is talking. He said the breaker is going to become, a, the king's going to come. The Lord's going to be at their head. And so the Lord is the one who initiates all this. You know, we came into this world dead in our trespasses and sins. We did nothing to contribute to our salvation at all. We could not do that. We're totally incapable of contributing to our salvation. We can't do anything worthy in God's sight at all. And i tell you something. If you know the Lord tonight, it's not because you came after God and sought him. It's because he came after you and sought you. Psalm 14 says this, there is no one who does good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, if, who, if there are any who seek after God. They are all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who do, does good, not even one. All of us are hopeless apart from the God who initiates salvation. And I love the words of Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. He says there, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. God is the one who initiates our salvation. He only asks that we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ. God is the great initiator, and he's the one who initiates this regathering of Israel. And so I said that we would approach this thing differently tonight. Now, briefly, we'll go through the passage verses 12 and 13. And verses twelve and thirteen speak very loudly to us of the involvement of God among His remnant. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see four descriptions of God, which help us to understand God's involvement among His remnant. Four descriptions of God, which help us to involve His, or show His involvement among the remnant. First of all, God is described as a shepherd. Verse twelve: God is described as a shepherd. It says, God says, "I will surely gather, assemble all of you, Jacob." I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men." Now this idea of God being a shepherd is found throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 80 verse 1, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you led your people Israel like a flock, you are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. All of us here who hasn't been comforted by, over the centuries Christians have been comforted by Psalm 23 the famous shepherd psalm about the Lord. And so we see this everywhere. God is described as a shepherd in verse 12. We'll notice the promise of the shepherd in the first two lines of verse 12, the promise of the shepherd. It says, I will surely gather you all of Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. This is addressed to Jacob. And who is Jacob? All of Jacob. It's defined by the next line, the remnant of Israel. He's talking about the remnant, the survivors, those who survive after a judgment. The Lord's going to gather those who remain after judgment. These are his faithful people. He promises them that he'll do this. He says, I will surely do this. He, he makes a promise to them. Those two phrases, I will surely assemble, I will surely gather, they emphasize, It's important here, they emphasize the certainty of the promise. This is a certain and sure and definite promise that will come about. God says, I'm going to definitely do this. There's no doubt about it. It's a no-brainer. It's going to happen. Why? Do we know this is going to happen? Because of the one making the promises. God is making the promise. God says, I'm going to do this, and we know that we can trust God. Now, we may, we keep, we may make a promise, but we don't always keep our promises. How often have you made a promise to your children, and you meant well, and you, you were well-intentioned, but you didn't hold to the promise? And how many of us have, or how many people in, in, in America, apparently 50% of people in America or more, have broken a promise uh, to remain married, right? Because their marriage ended up in divorce, and I think it's it may even be a higher percentage. I think it's the church the percentage in the church is the same or, or worse than the world even, and so, and that may have only been one of the partners who made who broke that promise. But the point is this: we don't keep our promises always, but the Lord always keeps His promise. It's certain when He says I'm going to do this, He does it. He made a promise early on in Genesis to give Israel the land as an everlasting possession. And guess what? He's going to keep that promise. He also promised that if they went, to, if they disobeyed, he would send them into exile, which he did in Assyria and then later on in Babylon. He did that as well. He kept his promise. And so God keeps his promises, not only to Israel, but to you and me as well. When God says something he, in, in the New Testament, he keeps it. If God says, I will never leave you and forsake you, then guess what? You can count on it. He'll always be with you. If God says that... Uh, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then he'll do that. If God says that Jesus is coming again, we can count on it and look forward to the time that Christ comes again. And so when the shepherd of Israel makes a promise, he keeps it. And so when he says, I'm going to surely re-ga- assemble all the people of, of Jacob, the remnant of Israel, that is, then he's going to keep that promise. He's going to gather everyone who truly belongs to him, not missing a one. All his people he'll gather together in that day, the people of Israel. Notice the care of the shepherd in the last three lines of verse 12. He says, "I'll put them together like sheep in the, in the fold, like a flock in the midst of the pasture. they will be noisy with men. The care of the shepherd. Now I'm sure that the Dewhurst could speak far better on this subject than I could uh, about, about this uh, idea here of the care of the shepherd. Um, the idea of, this idea of shepherding the sheep, by the way, is often used of God's care for exiled Israel. And his intent to bring them home is found in in several passages in Isaiah, for example. Uh, But the verse speaks about bringing sheep together so they can be safe and secure and comfortable. That's their comfort zone, a sheep in in a pasture. They can be uh, protected and cared for. And so we, we come to that great psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is what the Lord does for his people. In a future day, yes, Israel, and even his people now. The same is true in the New Testament. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus cares for us, and he watches over his flock, uh, whether it be the Old Testament or New Testament. He's a caring shepherd, and he's a faithful shepherd. Look at the phrase in verse 12, they will be noisy with men. suggests that there, at that time during the regathering there's going to be Noise and excitement and commotion among the people. Maybe even a throng of people there at that time uh, when they're regathered together. So God is described as the shepherd. Secondly, he's described as the breaker. And this is an interesting, I like this phrase, the breaker. Um, verse 13, the breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. It's in a very unusual titer, title for God to call him the breaker means one who breaks forth, one who bursts out uh, from an enclosure. He's enclosed in something, and he he breaks out from that, makes a breach, and goes through it. Other references talk about this, by the way. Um, You remember in Exodus 19 in the Mount Sinai, and, and God's given instructions to the people, don't come near Mount Sinai. This is a holy mountain at this time. And he says, do not let the priest and the people break through to come to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. He's gonna break forth upon them, and they're gonna wish they hadn't that hadn't happened. Why? Because he's the breaker. He's the one who removes all obstacles in this in this passage in Micah 2.13. He removes all obstacles in the way so others can come through. It's military language in this particular passage. The breaker will come will open the way for his people to be led out of captivity. He'll lead them out of captivity. That's why I think maybe it's talking about the Babylonian captivity. It's a similar idea in Exodus where, where when that took place, the Lord. Brought the waters up high, and then the armed men passed on through. And so you had this idea of the Lord breaking forth, and then the people following right after that. And so the Lord, as the breaker, can break the obstacles in this this day and age, this future time. But He can break the obstacles in your life as well, in in any form or fashion. He can even break out against Satan, his arch enemy, and defeat him as He did at the cross. He's described as the breaker. Thirdly, he's described as the king in verse 13. Third line, so their king goes on before them, it says. king goes on before them. The king of Israel, their ruler, does not just sit back and watch all this happen as others precede him and get into harm's way. That's not what he does. It. He goes before them, leading them all the way to victory. Have you noticed something here? He's talking about three titles for God already, shepherd, king, and breaker. There's no, there's no notice of human leadership here no human leadership, quite the contrast to the false prophets who preceded this section here, who misled the people in a bad way. But here, there's no Moses leading the people as earlier in the Old Testament. There's no Joshua leading the people as when they, as in the conquest of Canaan. There's no David leading the people as the greatest king Israel ever had. There's only the Lord here. But who else would you want to lead you? This is the only one. That the people of God could give their complete and total and full allegiance to without any hesitation at all. You put your trust in a human leader, even though a good leader, and it's it's always a mistake. You can put your complete. It's good to trust your leaders, but it's, you can only put your complete trust in the Lord and 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 the King. And who is this King? Psalms 24 says the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, and so he's described as the King. And lastly, in verse 13, he's described as the Lord. And it says at the end there, the Lord at their head. This is Yahweh, who is known to Israel. and They knew this. He was the covenant-keeping God, the God who promised them that he'd be with them and he'd love them and he'd take care of them as he did all through the Old Testament, and yet they constantly rejected him and turned their back on him. In a future day, he's going to be their Lord to the remnant, and they're going to be brought together to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth as they were originally intended to do. That's going to happen. And they will then realize their Messiah, the one that we already know. The Lord has made known to us. So he's described as the Lord. Well, honestly, this was a very difficult passage for me to look at. But there are great truths in here about God that we can learn. He is shepherd, he is the breaker, he is the king, he is the Lord. He's the one that Israel should have trusted in, but they failed to. He's the one that we do trust in now. He's the one that we will hopefully always trust in. And and How many difficult circumstances are represented in this room tonight? I know there are. I know of some right now. And the Lord is the one that we have to go to, right? We have to trust in. Well, I normally don't do this, but I I kept thinking about a a hymn in relationship to this passage. I normally don't close with a hymn, right, Ryan? But I'm going to now. If you'll turn in in your hymn books, not your Bibles, but... To, I don't know if you can do this or not. I can, I can read it. Oh, God, our help in ages past. Does anybody know the song? The, uh, we don't have books out there. Okay, let me read it to you. Oh, God, our help in ages past. I kept thinking this hymn while I was, as I was looking at this passage. Listen to this. Oh, God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Right? So Israel had God as their help in ages past. He's going to be their hope in the future, and so, does, so do we now. Our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home under the shadow of thy throne the thy saints have dwelt secure like sheep in a, in a pasture sufficient is thine arm alone and our defense is sure he's the breaker right before the hills and orders stood or earth received her frame from everlasting thou art God to endless years the shame, endless years the same he's our helper always so let's think about these truths tonight hope they'll Help us all as we consider the circumstances in our life that we can truly trust in the Lord. Let's pray. Well, we do thank you for your word tonight, and we pray that it'll be a help and a blessing to us. Uh, we do pray for the doer; she'll continue to give them great grace in their life and strength uh, from your from yourself, and they'll, they'll trust in you. And uh, we pray for Will; pray for his healing, as we have been. Uh, we pray for uh, your encouragement to them. We pray that we will continue to be a, a blessing to them uh, through our prayers and our uh, fellowship and and, and thoughts and uh, or maybe letters to them, and we just pray we'll be a blessing each other here. Lord, praise in Christ's name. Amen.